This is All the Right Marketing, a publishing podcast by Cardinal Rule Press. Now, here's your host, Maria Desmondi. Computer. So the recording will only be shared with those who signed up. Uh, welcome. My name is Maria Desmondi. I am a children's book publisher, and um, you may think it's kind of strange for a children's book publisher to be hosting something like this um, centered around children's mental health. But it is a big part of our mission here at Cardinal Rule Press. Our books are diverse. Our books are in, uh, focused on important realistic topics, and we truly believe in early intervention. Um, we feel that books can provide some sort of a bridge between the caregiver and the child they're reading to to address these really you know, big topics. So today we have some really special people here. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Um, let's have Dr. Carruthers begin. Uh, she is here tuning in from Tell Us Where as well. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Kristen Carruthers. I'm actually here tuning in from Orlando, Florida. My child has had spring break this week, but I, um, I'm based in Atlanta and do work in Atlanta and New York. So I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Thank you. And Daniel Hollander, would you please introduce yourself? My name is Daniel Den Hollander. I'm a clinical psychologist in Aflone, that's in Cape Town, which is basically the southern tip of South Africa. Um, yeah, I've worked in decade in specialized mental health care in the public sector, where one of my main duties was to do the child and adolescent mental health services, uh, but now full-time in private practice. Um, and I know that there are a few here that are attending from Cape Town. Um, I would say they're here for me, but I know they're here for Dr. Shafali. <laughs> and um, but uh, yeah, my sort of main source of income is still my two little boys um, and uh, also the adolescents in my practice. Um, a lot of them helped me to prepare for today's session as well, which is, uh, I, I promise them I'll give them a shout out. <laughs> Fantastic. And Dr. Shafali, you had a nice welcome there. Um, welcome. Can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Shafali. I'm an author of uh, several books on conscious parenting and mindful living. And I'm uh, very honored to be here as well. Uh, so nice to see so many people here. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I, first of all, want to just acknowledge uh, your time and your dedication in practice to mental health and especially uh, focused on children's mental health. Uh, you know, we're going to jump, we're going to jump in. I'm still missing one of our speakers. So as we get going, I will just um, see if we can find her, but we're going to jump in. And the first thing I really, we have about 30 to 40 minutes here. We're just going to jump in and we're going to begin talking to our experts today about what are you seeing? And I really want to focus on elementary age children through teens. So we'll kind of start with the elementary age. We'll spend some time there and then we'll move on to the topic of teens. But what, what are you seeing with your um, patients, with your clients at this point, let's say ages five to around 10, that looks quite different from five to 10 years ago? I guess I could jump in to start. Um, so I'm also in private practice, but do a lot of consultation with schools and uh, serve as a faculty member at Morehouse School of Medicine, where we have fellows who are rotating through um, some charter schools in Atlanta. And what I can say, based on information from my own practice and from talking with colleagues, is that levels of anxiety seem to be extremely high. 
Um, I think following the pandemic and shutdown and going back and forth from in-home schooling to regular schooling, we saw increases of anxiety in school-age kids. We also saw some difficulty with kids in terms of how they socialize with other people. So knowing how to problem solve um, in a way that's socially appropriate, avoiding like tussles and arguments and, and kind of going through how do you talk to people whom you don't agree with or when you have a disagreement, how can you stay calm and have conversations? And so what I've seen in practice and in the schools that I've worked with is a lot of increases in anxiety and some difficulty with like social skills. That is wonderful and it's a lot to unpack. We have um, increases in anxiety, difficulties with communication and problem solving. Those were kind of the top three that you really circled around on. Uh, we have individuals joining us from all across the country, all across the world actually. And so as our experts share what they're seeing, I would love for our listeners to type in the chat, what would you like us to talk more about? Would you like us to dive into the increase in anxiety, the problem solving and communication issues? Because um, we probably don't have time to tackle everything. So we'll continue to hear from our experts and to hear from our listeners what you would like us to dive deeper into. Um, Danielle? I tend to more focus on, on teenagers than um, in that age group. Um, but I think in regards with what we are seeing specifically in South Africa is a bigger um, uh, movement towards trying to suit the environment towards the individual rather than the individual into the, into the environment. And uh, that's been quite an interesting change. I, I think we have to contextualize it in the South African context. Um, it's been quite recent since we ended from a decolonial past um, that still has very much impact in our lives. I think it's something to be compared that often what in most countries would be difficulties that are encountered with the minority groups in our country would be with the majority group. Uh, a lot of socioeconomic structural violence, a lot of ACE kids, um, adverse childhood experience kids. Um, and uh, I think the exciting thing from a psychological perspective is we've had to change our role. We cannot just simply do individual psychotherapy or, or, or do one-on-one -on -one sessions. We've had to become much more social agents. Um, I suppose what we would call community psychology has now become the norm in, 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 in where I'm working at. Um, the profession is taking its time to change. The world is changing, but sometimes people change a bit slower, but it's quite exciting in those, in those forums. We, we're also doing quite a lot of work of changing the identity of psychologists. Um, and what we're noticing in regards with that is that um, there's a, a real thirst and a real cry from, from individuals that the old way of parenting, you know, the old school, old fashioned way of parenting is just not working, it's not cutting. Um, and a, a more individualized approach in regards with um, seeing the individual, uh, the, the kids and the children as small little minds that need to be cultivated and enjoyed um, is, is showing a lot of success in, in, in the work that we're doing. Uh, but my strategy always with that age group is I tend to end up doing therapy with the parents uh, rather than doing therapy with, with, with the, small, uh, the, the smaller members, um, because that is kind of naturally um, how it should be is um, that often the therapist comes in when there's a difficulty between the relationship between the child and the parents. 
So Daniel, we will definitely circle back when we're talking about those possible interventions and solutions. I want to come back to the fact that you really focus on the parents. And that's why um, with all of our marketing that we share on this free event, um, I think we had just over 100 people sign up. And um, that is disheartening to me in the sense I know people are busy, but we want parents to be hearing this. We want parents to be in the know. And um, so like you said, you're really focusing on what can the parent do versus um, going right to the child because it is different. The way that our children are growing up is so different. How can we possibly parent those individuals the same as we were parented 30 and 40 years ago? Dr. Shafali, what are you seeing um, with the work that you are doing? So I know you wanted to just focus on on young children. Is that it? You want to keep? Are you working through? I don't want to mess up your flow. So yeah, yeah, correct. We're working on elementary students. We're talking about the um, issues at hand, and then we're going to move into some solutions and interventions, and then we'll go back to teens. Okay, so I think you know. if you want to only focus on elementary, because the reason I'm asking for that is because what we're seeing with the teenagers is is at a level that we've never seen before. So I think if you want to keep it separate, but I think in elementary school children, uh, we have to be aware, like Daniel said, that it's the parents' energy and anxiety level that gets immediately absorbed by a child that young, right? A child that young is very absorbent and a teenager is more reactive a young child is more absorbent right first first they absorb they they take it all in their sponges and then they, when the water is filled up and the sponge is about to explode you see what we see in teenagehood which is the acting out but when you go backwards in the teenager's life that's what we're talking about right now oh they're taking it all in and we're not realizing how much they're taking in. So it's no point talking about the child. It's about talking about the two main streams of uh, where they absorb things from. And they absorb it from their parents and they absorb it from their school. And that's where we have to, so if we say that the child is anxious, that almost doesn't even exist. There's no mm-hmm. such thing as the child is anxious. It's the the things that they're absorbing that are causing them anxiety, right? So we have to always remember that as a parent or as a caregiver. If we say, oh, this child is so anxious. No, 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 no. The the child cannot be anxious. It's it's what is being put into them. They're being injected with these, uh, these toxins of the outside anxiety. So we are in a crisis of connection and the the crisis is because of several factors the pandemic notwithstanding but really we can't just blame the pandemic we have to we have to quote unquote give responsibility to how the parents handle the pandemic right how the culture handled the pandemic pandemics are crisis sure i never seen before but it's we it's us who have no skills to handle the pandemic and then our children absorb our lack of these skills. So, you know, social media, our level of distraction as parents and as a culture, the high level of stress and uh, pressure we place on our children to be competitive at the age of eight and 10 and to be superstars and to be perfect. You know, this is my latest book, The Parenting Map. And in this book, I talk about three biggest ills that we are injecting our young children with. It is the ill of being perfect, the ill of being successful, 
and the ill of being happy. So if, then I, I can talk about it more at another time, but these are the three toxins, you know, which we parents and caregivers come into the equation with, you know, be perfect, be happy all the time, which means don't have other emotions because I can't handle it and be successful. Now you put these three ingredients into any child, the most egregiously happy child, and you will create anxiety. And these are the three causes of the uh, anxiety. And it's at an all time high because we are becoming more primitive in our parenting and caregiving and schooling than more liberated. Sadly, we're becoming more, more and more primitive in our thinking. And I keep writing books and I keep getting more disheartened rather than heartened. You know, I literally keep, every time I write a book, I go, okay, this is it, this is my last book. Uh, because nothing seems to be changing. We are in a deep crisis. And we parents and everyone on this call is part of the solution. There is no child who is part of the solution. The children are exempt. They are immune. It's us who have totally mm -hmm. fucked it up. And, and, and the, the, the pass I'll give us is that we got fucked up, right? So that's our pass, you know? Uh, we, but how much to blame the previous generation? We have to now take ownership. But mm -hmm. we are in a crisis, crisis that I have never seen before. Um, and it is alarming and it is getting worse and not better. So we have to really wake up. I mean, we have no time left. We are already at the end of the time. You know, people in David Attenborough's movies, you know, of, on climate change, he'll put at the end, maybe there's still hope if everybody right now makes a change. It's never going to happen. So it's, it's a crisis. And we who care have to speak louder and uh, we are the clarion call. I mean, there is nobody else who's going to do it. Children oh. cannot be looked at, you know? We can't blame our kids. Our kids are literally just absorbing our crap. This is fantastic. And um, the comments are giving me the chills. Um, it's our problem. And so those of us on the call, what are we going to do about it? So we heard from our three experts. It's a major problem. We are in a major crisis. Um, I just read um, a book by Oprah and another individual, I will put it in the chat, but it's called What Happened to You. So if you are an adult in this space right now and you're dealing with things from your past, is a fantastic book to really start digging deep. Um, reach out to therapy, do your own work so that you can get through your past. But you're right, like what can we do in this space now for our children? And I know a lot of people feel overwhelmed, like, oh, it's just such a big crisis. If you have people, like children in your home, if you're a caregiver, you are making a difference right there with one child, two child, you, you can make a difference. So ladies and gentlemen, we've got um, communication issues. We have these children who have anxiety. What can the parents be doing in the homes to help? So let's, let's give them a couple, um, because what our listeners are saying is we wanna walk away with what can we be doing in the home? Um, so from my own, experience and um, research is have dinner with your children. Make time to sit down. I hear the excuse that everyone's too busy. And what do my experts feel about that? Families who are too busy to sit down once a week to eat dinner together. How do you feel about that? I think it's, that's also cultural, right? And so typically we do what's been modeled for us, not what we're told to do. And so if we come from families where 
both parents worked outside the household, had opposing schedules, or for some reason there was no family dinner time mm -hmm. due to whatever the range are, then you may have different opportunities for families to sit down and to have community. Oh, and like so that. I'd like to tell families is and parents is that your community time may not look the same as everyone else's community mm. time. It's important that you have some time where your children know that they have your undivided attention because if they don't have those opportunities, they will create them. And Beautiful. I think what Dr. Shafali is saying and Dr. Den Hollander is saying, when we talk about what's happening in the environment and how that impacts kids and kids being sponges, we as parents, if we want to wring the sponges out and kind of dry them out and get rid of some of that nasty stuff, we've got to create our own routines and practices to help our kids. On the topic of anxiety and worries and things of that nature, I think it's really important that parents know that it is normal for people to experience a range of emotions, right? And so if people experience worry or anxiety, that is normal. And children need to be taught that they will not always be comfortable. There are times when we must learn to tolerate distress because we won't always have control over every situation. For situations where we have control, we engage in activities, we try to change the situation, we try to problem solve, we seek resources from our communities, from our families. And there are other situations that we have no control over and we've got to learn to adapt, right? And this is what I talk to families about, rather than rushing in to solve all the problems for your kid, sitting back and saying, yeah, this doesn't feel great and you're not gonna die. This doesn't feel great, and we don't have any control over this situation right now. The moment we do have control over the situation, we'll do something. But for now, we have to be chameleons, right? Mm -hmm. We have to adapt to the situation temporarily. Let our, it pass, just like our emotions. We ride the wave, right? So you're heightened, you're heightened, you're heightened. You want to escape, you want to escape, you want to escape. That roller coaster has to come down. You can't stay at the top all the time. But again, that goes back to parents, like Dr. Shafali and Dr. Den Hollander said, right? Parents being able to tolerate their own negative emotions. Parents being able to create their own routines. Parents being able to kind of take some responsibility over and ownership over creating what they want their children to have. Okay. And so taking away the fact that it's not going to look the same for all families and you're right. It doesn't have to be dinner. I spoke with a parent yesterday and her and her husband work second and third shift. So a lot of times it's one parent is having breakfast with a child. Another parent is having one-on-one -on -one time in the car. They turn the radio off and they talk to their kids in the car because you're not going anywhere. They don't have devices in the car. So they're just sitting and talking. Um, and number two, you talked about these heightened emotions. So as an adult, when my emotions are heightened and I'm in the home, my kids are watching me as far as how I'm handling those situations, right? And it's okay, we're gonna make mistakes as parents, um, but isn't it important to say, wow, I could have handled that differently as these little sponges are watching us, right? I think there's also, unfortunately, especially with that age group, five to 10, there's a lot of competitiveness that comes in with parents and also with schools as if we're running a, a race. And um, we've got to remember this is a marathon, not a race. So it's, you know, who, who's the first to read? Who's the first to uh, walk? Who's the first to be able to read a book from, from cover to cover? And there's such a competitive nature in regards that comes and creeps into parenting um, and, 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 and that pressure that comes through. And I think to some extent, that's what happens when self-help books and, and parenting books um, takes over from the community 
um, and, and where our only guidance from, from parenting skills comes from, from books that we read instead of individuals that we speak to. And um, I think in, in, in that light, because it's not there, because we don't get the supports and because we have this weird idea as if each one of us is born and we've got this, I think we also need to put to bed these weird concepts of mother instinct and father instinct. I don't think it is an instinct. I think it's very much communal wisdom that becomes internalized by ourselves. Um, and, and we lose that community um, perspective. Um, and then on top of that, what, what also takes place is that we pathologize everything. Um, I mean, um, I, I know it's the, the movement of the anti-psychiatry movement, but how the hell do we jump from seven diagnoses to 400 in the space of less than 40 years? Um, everything is now a, a pathology. And we, we, we spend so much energy and so much concern and so much worry about the pathologizing of our children that we forget that it's, it's actually beautiful coping mechanisms because often the time isn't given to our kids for our kids to be able to learn how to regulate, learn how to engage with a very confusing world. Um, and I, I don't buy that argument of there's no time for, for con contact, there's no time for dinner, because the amount of people and amount of traffic that's on sites like Facebook, Instagram, I mean, I'm sorry, that's not all teenager energy, that's, that's us as well. So we've got time to socialize on those types of, of, of engagements, but we don't have time for our kids. And I think that comes down to a, a very important underlying concept um, that I know uh, my fellow speakers are, are constantly talking about is, is that often the most difficult thing about parenting is that our kids trigger us and we don't take the responsibility in dealing with our things first. And if we don't deal with our things first, how on earth are we going to be able to be in a space where we can contain and regulate um, those that are entrusted to us? Wow. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot, but I think the fact that you, we should acknowledge the fact that you showed up here today, um, those of you who are listening, uh, that you have courage to do something for the individuals in your life, for the children in your lives, for the teenagers in your lives. You're here, you have the courage, and you're listening. Um, so really looking at your past trauma, looking at what's going on with you, um, and what is it that triggers you? Uh, I know, you know, as a mother of three, um, the mess triggers me because when I was a child, uh, I guess I should add a pin so people can see me. When I was a child, my stepdad would come into my room and he would take his finger. And if he had dust on his finger from any of the wood in my bedroom, I would have big consequences. So when there are messes in my home, I start to feel like my chest, I get the, the anxiety, I start these, my, my body starts alarming me. And I know that it doesn't make a big difference to me. You can see the big mess behind me, um, but sometimes I have to walk away. So I have two girls and a boy, and I don't often go into my girls' bedrooms. Um, I say I say goodnight to them on our second floor versus my husband goes and tucks them into their beds because going into their bedrooms triggers me. It does. And I, I like the end of the night to be okay. And so I know that that's my thing, not theirs. Um, so a lot, I, I just think that our speakers really honed in on it, that it's a lot of what it, what's happening with us as parents, as parents. So I just wanted to be transparent that um, you're not alone 
And this, this work that we're doing is hard. Let's talk about teenagers. So if we're saying these children, um, the anxiety isn't in the children, it's the parents, the absorbent. Let's go back to Dr. Shafali. You had said the um, younger children are really absorbent, but the teenagers are really reactive. Tell us a little bit more about that. So just like we in our lives are living a pattern, which we don't even realize, we're unconscious to the fact that our childhood conditioning has caused our parenting. We think we are reacting to our children de novo. You know, we think that it's the child who is creating the, the reaction in us. Uh, when I first wrote my book, The Conscious Parent, no one uh, out there in a, in a mass way, in a, in a big way, was really talking about the unconsciousness of the parent. And when I began to call parents on it, I got a lot of backlash. And now 13 years later, conscious parenting is a thing. But when I wrote my first book 13 years ago, it was definitely not a thing because we don't see our own patterns. So similarly, a teenager, by the time they are eight or nine, uh, uh, let's be generous, 12 or 13, the patterns are set. and not doesn't mean they can't be dissolved and doesn't mean they can't be undone. So there is tremendous potential for healing. So as much as I'm talking about a gloom and doom scenario, the reason I do keep writing books is my fifth or sixth book is because I do see parents changing when they begin to practice conscious parenting and understand their patterns, things do shift metamorphically. And it is amazing how much the family changes. So what I want to say is that we're all living patterns. The teenager, by the time they are 12 or 13, think about it. They have been absorbing, 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 absorbing. Now they have two choices, only two choices. Same with us. We either react outward or we react inward. Typically, more of a masculine mode is to react outward through aggression, through uh, risky behavior, through uh, failing classes, through joining gangs. And inward is more feminine, more, you know, more female, uh, but also more feminine, even if you're a male. It's going inward, it's becoming depressive, it's cutting, self-loathing, um, suicidality. So now it's become a, a reactive pattern, but, but the external is only an indicator of the internal. So I always tell parents, think of the acronym SIGN, S-I-G-N, something inside gone negative. All behavior, all misbehavior is a sign, something inside gone negative, right? So when you see your teenager acting inward or acting outward, the first thing we tend to do is do two things. We as parents will do things. We'll either go outward and yell at them and punish them and ground them, or we'll go inward. Oh, it's me. I'm a bad parent. We become guilt-ridden. We become shameful. We do the same things, two things, outward or inward. And all of that causes a cyclical loop, which is very hard to break out of. So I teach in all my courses and in this book how to break these patterns. But just quickly, for the teenager who is acting out or acting in, the first thing we parents need to, to realize is that it's not personal. It's not against us. And it's it doesn't mean that something is bad. It means something has gone wrong within the teenager. So now we have a choice. We are empowered to look at it with eyes of compassion. 
and we go deeper and ask, okay, why is my teenager misbehaving? Why are they using drugs? Why are they using alcohol? And all of it is because of a traumatic reaction to inner disconnection. So if we can remember that, so when your teenager says, I hate you, or uh, you're the worst mom in the world and slams the door, or then is taking drugs and cutting classes, and your instinct is to yell or to blame yourself, you have to take a pause. And that's where you practice mindfulness. And then you say, okay, something inside gone negative. What's going on inside my teenager? Where is this pain coming from? And you have to intervene. Now, here is where your patterns will come into play because, and I talk about five patterns in this book. If you are a fixer, you're going to over enable or rescue. If you are a fighter, you're going to yell and scream. If you're a feigner, a freezer, a fleer, I talk about different patterns. Your patterns are going to come into play and now you're going to keep the loop going. So when you see your teenager, quote unquote, depressed or acting out, acting in or acting out, that is actually the red flag for the system to wake up and go get a coach, go see a therapist, get, you know, I have a coaching institute, other people may be taking clients. I have hundreds of coaches out there who do this work to that. That's where you call someone and you say, my family needs an intervention and you don't have shame about it. You have compassion for yourself and get the help because it mm. is a red flag. When your teenager acts out, it is the greatest gift to you because it's, it's, it was coming. It's been coming. See, we think, oh, it's you. oh, my kid turned 15 and turned into a monster. There's no such thing. It has been slow cooking. It just, the bubble has burst now. And that's your gift. That's your awakening to go get help. Thank you for those words. You know, Dr. Carruthers, we had spoken a couple of weeks ago, and I know you do um, some family um, interventions. You do some family therapy. Tell me, how do you get parents and teenagers talking? How do you how do you get those lines of communi communication moving? Uh, typically, I think um, it's something that came up between the three of us at the very beginning of the panel is getting the parent and something that Dr. Shapali just said is getting parents to understand that the kid's behavior is typically the symptom for something going really wrong in the family, right? So when parents come in and they want to blame a kid, there's a reframe that has to happen, which is okay, so this kid is presenting this way, but let's talk about what's really going on. And many times parents will say, well, this isn't about me. And this, I came here for my kid. And what I'll say to them is, this is all about you. And there are likely some things that have happened to you or that you're doing that you don't realize are really impacting your kid. So the first step is to get parents to understand that the way they were parented impacts how they parent. And that sometimes they are putting way too much pressure on a kid. When we talked about, when I'm, um, Dr. Dan Alder talked about, you know, who's going to be reading first, who's writing first, how many activities are you in, all of this pressure um, and failure to acknowledge that kids are human beings. They are individuals, right? This is not your little baby that you brought home for the hospital that you get to decide when they eat, when they sleep. This is a human being with likes and interests that are different from yours. You may have a similar personality to your teen and you may not. And so just recently I had to talk to a family about temperament matches and mismatches, right? So you've got a, a, a young a, a teenager who's rebelling against one parent and not the other. Is this about personality or is this about the kid receiving signals from a parent that he's not good enough or she's not good enough? 
Um, I do a lot of work with families going through high conflict separations, divorces, or for parents who were never married and now separate. And typically I'm mandated by the court to be the therapist for either the high conflict co-parenting dyad or for the kid involved, right? And when I'm in those situations where I'm the therapist for the kid, I hear a lot from kids that there are things that both parents have done that they don't acknowledge, right? But they're always riding the kid about what the kid has done wrong or that the parents want them to choose a side. So there's this concept of triangulation. In order to get families to move point past the point of resistance, there's gotta be willingness from parents to understand that they have had an impact on their kids' behavior and for them to be okay with saying sorry if there are things that they have done consciously or unconsciously that have impacted their child. And there are some parents who can't do that, right? And so we gotta be open and aware that there are some who just refuse. And at that time, that's when I gotta teach a kid how to adapt, right? You're in this situation and your parents refuse to acknowledge your pain, what's happened that they've contributed to. That's who you got. I'm sorry that they can't acknowledge that for you, but how can we move you forward? On the flip side, I've got some parents who are more insightful and who will say there are things that we can do differently. And once we get a, a parenting diet or just one parent, one adult in a kid's life who will say, I'm willing to acknowledge that something happened and I'm willing to work to change my behaviors and the way I'm thinking about these situations to impact my kid, then we can actually do some therapeutic intervention. Mm, that's wonderful. Daniel? Um, I was asking, we do have a question here. It says, do you have advice for parents and guardians of teenagers who are resistance to, resistant to therapy and counseling? So it's the par I, I, parents and guardians who are resistant. The parents and the guardians that are resistant. Mm -hmm. Look, um, therapy is like comedy. It's all about the timing. And I think in sense is to say, um, what usually brings a person to therapy is the fact because if you ignore yourself, your body doesn't lie. So um, the situation will get desperate enough that you will come. So, I, I mean, um, especially if, if I was to mishear you and say kids not wanting to come into therapy, I think it's always important that a kid has to be given the opportunity, especially a teenager, uh, to want to come or not want to come. Uh, parents tricking their kids into therapy is just doing everybody a huge disservice. Mm. That's good advice. But I think also is to say, you know, therapy is difficult. Um, I, I remember there was a client um, I had years ago um, who bumped into me at the, the shopping market and then later on in therapy said that she also bumped into her gynecologist and she said she couldn't work out which one was more for her um, embarrassing to see. So that's when I realized that. A psychologist is, is as um, embarrassing or as um, intrusive as a gynecologist. And, and most people, when I say that, they say, no, the gyne uh, it's actually easier to go and see your gynecologist. So I think therapy in itself is, is difficult. Um, but I think I also just want to um, touch in with, with what was said just now, especially when it comes to more um, what we call the, the more severe, and I say it like this because I don't think it is like that, um, pathologies, you know, when, when you've got a, a kid with um, who's been diagnosed with ADHD or conduct disorder, um, that thank goodness that we're now moving from a pathological perspective of mental health into what we call now the ecological 
Um, what we, we now talk about spectrum instead of autism. And I think that the beautiful word that we use, and I hate that word neurodivergence because it's a, it's, it's a terrible word. I much prefer the word neurodiverse because we talk about diversity um, and there's a neurodiversity. There's a beauty in just that word in itself is that um, like, for example, if there's a, a, a person, a, a young person in the room that's um, got ADHD, there's a super, uh, and, and it's also beautiful that it's neurodiversity is coming at the time of Marvel and, and superheroes and so forth, because that concept is there of, in fact, a lot of these, um, what we call disorders are actually in a sense, almost superpowers. Um, ADHD, I, I, I Xbox um, as much as anybody else as I was born in the eighties. Um, but um, when I Xbox, I don't want to Xbox against an, a, a kid with ADHD because he's going to beat me every single time. Uh, because their responses in regards to uh, programming is always going to be 10 times faster than me. Um, a person with conduct disorder often is the person who calls out the racist teacher. It's often the person who do, does call out the problems within the system. And the system doesn't want to change because there's always resistance with change. And I think when, when you have a person in the room, one of the most beautiful things you can do is to show the parents who often is so obsessed with being socially appropriate and socially acceptable. And also, I mean, that's also often the difficulty with, with teaching is that your, your focus, as much as you want to focus on the individual, is on the collective. If you lose the, the collective of the classroom, it's very difficult to teach. Um, but sometimes that puts you at a disadvantage because you miss the genius of a coping mechanism. You miss the genius of what we call pathology, which is which is often just a um, maladaptive brilliance of, of a mind that's dealing with very complicated and very complex um, situations, interpersonal relations, um, or a, a mind that the world is not yet ready to, to be able to deal with. I mean, the reality is the six most influential people on our planet um, are neurodiverse and, and at, quite a, at quite a rate. Um, and I would hate to be their class teacher when they were kids, um, but thank goodness they are there. Otherwise, a lot of the things that we have today wouldn't be available. I think it's important to point out that you're talking about the fact that, you know, what our, what our teens are dealing with, um, you know, bring to light the fact that there are other individuals in the world who are, are in similar situations, but they're thriving with their strengths, right? So you're really focusing on the strengths of these individuals and, and finding examples out in the world for them. Like you said, you know, Marvel movies. And, and, and I know there's a lot of movies right now that um, have beautiful examples and, you know, uh, real life examples of individuals who have struggled and, and showing these examples to your children and, and showing them that they're not alone. But there's also a dangerous disconnection that's taking place. Um, and especially, um, I mean, um, the two co-presenters have, have, have really um, highlighted that, is uh, parents want to suppress. Um, and I, it's a very strange thing why. So one of the things that's quite interesting with teenagers is um, sort of the revolution of anime. I, I don't know, I'm sure you have it in the States as well, but in, in South Africa, anime is just taking storm. And I, was, I had a, a consult today um, with, with a client and we're busy watching Spirited Away as part of our therapy, just taking it 20 minutes by 20 minutes and then talking about what we're seeing. Um, and I asked her the question of, you know, with anime, um, I know that a lot of parents get irritated with anime because of the emotion and the expression. It's always way over the top. 
And, and she says such an interesting thing to me. She said she actually finds it quite liberating because it normalizes emotions for her. Um, it's part of the, 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 the framework. It's part of the setup. And, 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 and I, it, was, it struck me so much that the word liberating came in there. Um, it's, it's, I'm allowed to have expression. I'm allowed to have emotion. And what we do is a, a teenager is sad for a little bit too long and immediately we want to thrust the word depressed in there or, you know, how anxious are you? Where's the anxiety? And I think we really need to take a step back um, in regards with that. Um, I think we've lost touch. And the problem is the more you suppress emotions, the more louder the emotions have to be in order to be heard. Because remember what emotions are. They are nothing more than smoke detectors detecting where the hurts and where the fire really is. Ooh, and that, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Treat emotions as anything else. The most an emotion can do is give you a headache like a smoke detector. But, it's, but then we miss the fire. And, and that's a big concern. Wonderful. You know, we we are running out of time. And so I want to respect everyone's time. So I'm going to have one last um, question from the audience. And um, then we will wrap things up. Um, would like to go back. Um, Haley would like to go back to the topic of reversing patterns. Um, and she said for the younger child who are still absorbing, but um, what if the patterns are with the teenagers as well? But as a parent, if it is, whether it's a product of their own childhood or these bad habits that a family has formed on schedules and routines, can you change? Can you make a change? Can you make a change in your family? Uh, you've spent the last five years, let's say spending time yelling as your regulation habit. Can you make a change? Is it, is it possible? Have we ruined our children? Can we make a change and do better? And it's silent. Does anyone, is, that, is the answer no, we can't? <laughs> I, I prepared an answer for this. Um, I knew it was coming and the question was coming. And uh, I actually wanted to phrase um, a great poet on, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Khalil Gibran, um, but he wrote um, on the prophets on children. I think we, we, we don't need to bring the change. Our, our kids will bring the change they'll evolve way past us um our job is just to hold and facilitate and give the best springboard i'm just going to quickly read through this but um give them your love but not your thoughts for they have their own thoughts you may house their bodies but not their souls for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow which you cannot visit even in your dreams you may strive to be like them that might be the answer um but strive or seek not to make them like you and, and and the ultimate burn of all time for life doesn't go backwards and i think once you incorporate that that question becomes almost redundant is um we facilitate they will give us the answers beautiful beautiful can you please type in the author's name of that poem thank you uh, any final words dr shofali or dr carruthers well, just, you know, of course we can change, uh, but change ha happens only in the present moment. So you have to understand with compassion that your wake-up call could have only happened right now because you're only ready right now. So many, many parents look back and they have guilt and they have shame and regret, 
but uh, they could not be who they are now without who they were yesterday. And we have to embrace that, that this yeah. is the part of evolution, that we don't wake up conscious. It's something you have to cultivate and work on. And so consciousness only emerges from unconsciousness. So yes, you look back and you're like, you cringe and you shudder at all your unconsciousness, but you appreciate that that's what brought you to the present moment. And there is no this without that. So we always want the, you know, to get to the top of the mountain without the climb. So it's the same thing here. You cannot have gotten to this moment at the threshold of a new awakening without having died a few times. So once you embrace that that is the nature of change, death is the nature of awakening, then uh, you will just forge ahead and start right now. And your whether your children change or not is not why you're changing. You're changing because you're healing. And you're not changing because it's a mental gymnastic. You're changing because you're truly evolving. You truly have healed. If you've healed, that's changed. So you're not, you, you don't tell yourself, don't yell, don't yell, don't yell, don't yell. Because that's not, that's not change. Healing, you ask yourself, why am I so broken that I am yelling? Why am I so broken that I'm screaming every day? Why am I broken that I'm overeating, over drinking? Don't change the alcohol in your house, change the reason why you need the alcohol, right? So it's uh, very deep. And when you heal, everything shifts and your children will follow when they are ready. You can't expect them to immediately change tomorrow because you've stopped yelling. They're first not going to believe you as they shouldn't uh, because they want to make sure that it's sustainable. So healing brings about the greatest change. So the greatest gift you can give your children is your own healing. Mm. Thank you for that. And Dr. Crothers, do you have any final words as you wrap up today? I've learned so much from my two colleagues on the panel, and I really appreciate their words of wisdom. And I think that we could all benefit as a parent myself. I'm going to take those words and try to apply them in my own life. So thank you both. Well, I have to say, watching the faces of the people listening, there's been a lot of head nods. So we just really value and thank you for your time and for the hundred plus people who have um, taken the step to be here and to listen. Um, remember that you can make a difference in your own home, in your own classroom, in your own school, um, one child at a time, one human at a time. Look at yourself, right? One human at a time. And we, we can be the voice, just like uh, one of our speakers said, we can be the voice, we have to be loud, but here we are, let's do something. So thank you, everyone. Have thank a wonderful you. day. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. Especially to our speakers. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. If this episode resonated with you, let's take it a step further. Head over to cardinalrulepress.com and check out our blog. It is filled with resources for anyone who loves books, whether you are a publisher, a librarian, a bookseller, or an author. We help you to figure out ways to get visibility around those books. Thanks for listening to All the Right Marketing with Maria Desmondi. 
If there is a topic you would like us to explore and cover, please email podcast at cardinalrulepress.com. Head over to our website, cardinalrulepress.com, to sign up for our monthly newsletter where you can learn more tips on getting books visible into the market. Last but not least, follow us on Instagram for a daily dose of all things books. If you enjoyed this episode, rate and review or share with a friend or colleague. Thanks so much.